It is a joy to be with you. And if uh, on this particular morning, if I appear more bright and shiny than any time in the past, it's really just a direct result of the carryover from last week's service. Would you not agree with me that that service last week was just filled with incredible joy? It's been a real touching thing to consider um, the joy that came from it. As talking with many of you over the course of this week, how your hearts were so thrilled uh, by what you saw and witnessed last week. Uh, what did we see? We saw baby dedications. We saw believers' baptisms and the right hand of fellowship. We heard professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we made commitments to the Lord together to abide in Christ, in his word, and in his church, raising these children, these blessed children together, and stirring on one another to love and good deeds, all to the glory of God. This is the purpose of our very lives, is it not? The glorification of God. This is made abundantly clear from the text that we're going to study this morning. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, we certainly got the uh, idea of this right last week, bearing much fruit as a church. God was greatly glorified in four acts of obedience by believers to be baptized, and then in the addition of 12 new members to this body of Christ, adding those living stones to this spiritual household that we call the Berean Bible Church. But here's some questions for us this morning as we kind of live in the afterglow of what happened last week here in the Lord's house. The church was able to demonstrate that as collectively, brothers and sisters, that we're bearing much fruit. Do you bear much fruit in your own life? Does your fruit glorify God? Does it prove that you are his disciple? Do your actions, words, and thoughts prove that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? And do you realize the direct relationship between the fruit that you produce and the source of supply which you receive the ability to produce fruit? Do you see the connection? You see, supply is the real issue when it comes to spiritual fruit. Supply. You've heard the axiom or the proverb, garbage in, garbage out. What is supplied up front directly affects the output. This is the case in printing. I was involved in the printing industry for many years, and I know that you cannot take a black substrate and put it through a machine and get a color image on the other side. You must start with something clean and pure, a nice white sheet of paper to get the image that you desire for contrast on the other side. Supply, what goes in, is critical to the outcome. Supply is the central issue for bearing spiritual fruit. I want you to consider supply with me for a minute. This is a way of illustration or introduction this morning. California has a bit of a water crisis. Uh, to put it mildly, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's low, the level of water here in California. And in 1963, the state began to build an aqueduct system to alleviate some of the water challenges that Californians face. The idea was to transport water from the north near Stockton and bring it all the way to the south where water is in much higher demand. The water supply splits into three lines, one serving the coast where we're at, one serving the Central Valley, and then one serving a little bit further to the east. It goes all the way down to Lake Kachuma and serves Vandenberg, goes out to Lake Castaic and serves Los Angeles. It even goes over to the city called Palmdale, a little drop on the map, and down to Riverside. We're talking about 441 miles of supply line going through pumping stations, power plants, reservoirs, and treatment facilities to get water which is essential for life 
to 25 million people. What happens if this flow of water stops? Well, Palmdale dries up and dies. There are two lessons that I want you to consider out of the flow of water. Number one, out of nothing, a city like Palmdale can flourish if it is supplied by the essential for life, which is water. The second would be that this has to continually happen, not just supply it, but then continually be supplied by life or by the life-giving force of water so that Palmdale will literally, in its desert condition, bear fruit. The supply of water becomes crucial. It's critical. Not only the supply, but the continual feeding of water. Supply also goes into the idea of electricity as well. My home state, Washington, has a a dam in the center of the state called Grand Coulee. It sits on the Columbia River in the middle of the state, and it's a massive dam, three times larger than the Hoover Dam, which is not too far away. Grand Coulee supplies 21 billion kilowatt hours of electricity each year. And that supply network goes all the way up into Canada and comes all the way south to California, Arizona, and even reaches into New Mexico. Grand Coulee Dam's power reaches into 4.2 million homes. How critical is it to our existence to have the supply of electricity? Pretty critical here. How attached are you to the supply lines that are created in your life just for your very existence? Water, power, Costco, Walmart. Oh, you say, oh, I don't need Costco or Walmart. I don't have that. That's because you have Amazon on the phone app on, in your, right in your pocket. Supply is so critical. Supply. General Dwight D. Eisenhower said, you will not find it difficult to prove that battles, campaigns, and even wars have been won or lost primarily because of logistics, which is supply. It's not a big surprise that for military victory, you need to cut the enemy's supply line. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us as Christians that in order to bear much fruit, to defeat sin and death and Satan, the course of this world, and the wickedness of our own sinful flesh, God must provide a perfect supply system to always give us what we need. And He has. He has in the form of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus demands that we abide in Him as branches abide in a vine. That's what we're going to see this morning. And my hope is to really strengthen your attachment to Christ. That's what I want to do. Strengthen your attachment to Christ that you would be able to see him as the perfect and essential supplier of the very existence of your being. Your very life depends on the supply that you receive from him, and that you would abide in Christ, bear much fruit, and bring great glory to God. We're going to consider this by looking at John 15 this morning. If you've missed our Wednesday night studies, I encourage you to come on Wednesday night for that family hour, hour and a half that we spend. I've been teaching through John, and John 15 just pours out so much for us. We want to go through this together. Turn there in your Bibles now. We'll be looking at this seventh of seven I am statements that Jesus declares in the gospel of John. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. I am the vine. So allow me to set the context for us this morning from John 15. Where do we find ourselves in John 15? Where am I dropping you into this morning? What's the, the context that we sit in, the historical context? This is the night of glory. So we've been talking about on Wednesdays for the last three weeks, the night of glory. That's what you're looking at. You're you're dropped into a context where Christ is sitting with his disciples and he's filling the room with glory. It's Jerusalem. It's Passover. 
It's Thursday night, and there's less than 12 hours till Jesus' crucifixion. This is known by many of us as the upper room discourse. Earlier in the night, Jesus had washed all 12 of the disciples' feet and gave them an extreme example of humility and servanthood. And yet one of the disciples was a devil. He was a thief and a liar and a betrayer. His name was Judas Iscariot. Jesus would tell him, what you do, do quickly in his betrayal. Immediately after Judas' departure, Jesus exclaimed, now, now, at this moment, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. This was a night of glory, much glory. When Jesus celebrates the victory of the cross with his disciples before it even happens, and he tells them that he is departing to be with the Father, but the disciples at this point, they're not totally rejoicing with him. Their hearts are troubled. Three years they've been with Jesus. Will he actually leave them like he's talking about? Can they go with him at this time? When will they see him again? Sorrow and grief are gripping these men's heart. And even to find out that one among them who they had trusted, who they had turned to like many of us today would turn left and right and, and not realize could actually be a betrayer. So this night of glory is about comfort for these men. It's about reassurance. It's about truth and about promises. But they need to know how they relate to Jesus. That's what they need to know. And so Jesus gives them an illustration, a beautiful word picture, which shows them that Jesus is the only supply of spiritual life, and you must stay connected to him. So read with me John 15 verses 1 to 11. Let's jump into the night of glory and see what Jesus says here. He begins, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, ask and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I hope at this point, that you can see and feel and perceive the compassion of Jesus Christ for these 11 disciples that are left that are about to lose their savior, their mentor tomorrow. They're going to lose him. He's got such incredible compassion for them. He speaks to them and says, I give you my joy and my love. I want to supply these to you because you're my disciples. All this first person possessive pronoun, my, my, my love, my joy, I give to you. You're my disciples. He has such great love for them. And then he moves into giving them this word picture, which, which reveals to them 
how they relate to him and to the Father, in order that they may bear much fruit and glorify God. It is from the height of Jesus' compassion then, from the height of compassion, that we get this glorious illustration of Jesus as the vine and believers as the branches. Let's go through this word picture and just explain it first. And then we'll consider three fruits that are supplied by the vine illustration that will help us to abide in Christ. But first, the illustration. The vine illustration explained. This is as simple as it is profound, this illustration. The illustration has four characters set in the scene of a vineyard, which would be very familiar language for the disciples because it's not much unlike the territory in which we live today, where if you just go out Carpenter Canyon or Corbett Canyon, what do you run into out there? You run into vineyards. It's not too far off. So the production of grapes and this agricultural product and crop was very common at this time. They would have been all around. And Jesus says in this context to these men, I am the true vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. You need to know also that there are fruit-bearing branches and there are non-fruit-bearing branches. Next, the illustration looks at the actions of each character. The father is said to perform two actions. He takes away dead branches. And he prunes branches that are bearing fruit for the purpose that they would yield more fruit. The fruit-bearing branch has two tasks, abide in the vine, and as we see, pray to the father. Communicate with the Father. The non-fruit-bearing branch is actionless, only passive. First, it's passive in the idea that the non-fruit-bearing branch doesn't bear fruit. And then in being thrown away, dried up, gathered, cast into the fire and burned, this branch is only continually passive. The vine supplies the abiding branches with the means to bear fruit. We see this in 15.4 and 15.5 where Jesus says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see how definitive that is? If Christ abides in you and you abide in him, this one, he bears much fruit. D.A. Carson says, The transparent purpose of the verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Hang on to that. So the father is making a vineyard. He's making a vineyard where the true vine supplies only abiding branches, allowing them to bear much fruit and bring him all the glory due his name. And any branch not abiding in the vine then is thrown out and burned up. This illustration is simple and exceedingly helpful to Jesus' disciples. Now they know how to relate to Jesus and to the Father and how Judas relates to them as well. Judas was spiritually dead and was dried up and burned as a consequence. Jesus supplies spiritual life, which he has given to these 11 other disciples because they bear fruit and will only continue to bear more fruit through their obedience, prayer, love, and joy. Does this does this illustration come with interpretive challenges? Oh, there are a couple, and we'll discuss those as we go along this morning. But know this, Jesus' disciples were comforted by this illustration. They were comforted. That's the aim this morning as well, is to comfort you as believers in Christ, to comfort you in this illustration. 
This was the night of, of glory, and this was Jesus' great desire was to comfort these men. These men who would bear much fruit in the days and years that follow, building the church that Jesus Christ said that he would build, he put it in as a task in their hearts to build his church. And so we see that much fruit was produced from this illustration because these disciples took off and changed, they changed the whole course of the world. This illustration also, though, bears fruit for us, and we want to extract that fruit now. So that's my job is really to share with you three fruits supplied by the vine illustration, three fruits supplied by the vine illustration that will help us to abide in Christ. So I'm going to give you these three fruits today. We're going to start with the first one. The first fruit supplied by the vine illustration is the declaration of Jesus' deity. The declaration of Jesus' deity. That's the first fruit that you see from this I am the vine, the true vine illustration. Where do we see the declaration of Jesus' deity in this illustration? We see a declaration in the opening two words of the illustration. The two words, I am, I am, in the Greek, ego eimi, I am. Seven times, I am declarations are made by Jesus in John's gospel that you should be very familiar with. In chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life, better than the manna that came down from heaven. He says in chapter 8, I am the light of the world at the Feast of Tabernacles when all the lights were going off, the candle lights. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep the salvation, the path of entrance, the door of the sheep. He says in chapter 10 also, I am the good shepherd. Psalm 23 should come to mind. Chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, he says, in this night of glory, earlier in this night of glory, he says to them, as they're thinking, the way, the way, where are you going? Help us to know the way. And he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This terminology, I am, the self-declaration and identification of Jesus as the Savior is all too known to the Jews of this day. They are extremely familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Here, Jesus picks up the same language again and defines himself in the terms that show that he is the ultimate supplier of spiritual life. And the disciples don't say, come on, Jesus, we've heard this before. They need to hear this. They long to hear this as often as he will tell it to them. Tell me again that you're God. I got I to hear that again. One more time, please. And he did. He gave it to them. There's no difference between them and our kids and our relationship to our kids. How often do our children need to know that we love them? How often do they need to know how they relate to us? How often do they need to hear how Jesus relates to them and to us, that he paid for our sins and his death on the cross? They need to know it often. One interpretive challenge suggests that the vine dresser and the vine express an inequality between the father and the son in this illustration. But that's just the point. It's an illustration. You don't have to go back very far to John 14, 9, and you can see that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen a rock has seen my father. What did he say in John 10 30? I and the father are two. I and the father are one. This is a declaration of deity. And I hope in your heart and in your mind to yourself every day, you preach the deity of Jesus Christ as God. Christ is God. Preach that to yourself. We need to preach it to our children as well. 
we see him say here, I am. But he goes further in declaring his deity, and he uses this next word, true, to declare his deity. He says, I am the true vine. Well, to get an understanding of what's happening here with the true vine, I need you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 80. Turn to Psalm 80. The Greek word true here is aletheine, which comes from aletheia, meaning true or genuine. Jesus says he is the true vine, the genuine vine. And what are we to make of true? What are we to make of true? Psalm 80 will help us. Don, our brother Don here this morning read to you from Isaiah 5 about the vineyard of Israel and her wild grapes, which were totally displeasing to the Lord. They were, destruct- they were destroyed as a result. They were not the true nor the genuine vine. The same is true in Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 15. Because of Israel's harlotry, she was destroyed. Consider Psalm 80 with me, a psalm of Asaph, who says to God in verse 8, Psalm 80, verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And then Asaph describes a time of great prosperity for the vine, followed by a time of destruction. And then in 14, he pleads with God, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Do you see the connection? Jesus in John 15 is declaring himself to be the fulfillment of all of the vine prophecies of the Old Testament regarding Israel. John MacArthur says Israel's apostasy made it an empty vine and for a long time disqualified them as the channel of God's blessing. Andreas Kostenberger says, theologically, John's point is that Jesus displaces Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation with the implication that faith in Jesus becomes the decisive character for membership among God's people. Aren't we so blessed? Aren't we so blessed? It is in Christ alone that we have salvation and redemption and membership among God's people. You no longer abide in Judaism. You are no longer responsible for going to the temple and performing sacrifices and trampling the courts of the Lord. You're job, your obligation, if you are to be saved, you are only to abide in Christ. This is the end of the gospel. Christ alone. He is the true vine. Do you abide? Do you abide in him? Is he the supplier of your very life? The word means to stay, to remain, to dwell, as in housing, to dwell in a house. You know, every earthbound illustration with this fails. If you were to abide in a warm towel, which comes out of the dryer, the warmth of the towel will fade. If you are to abide in a hug from a loved one, inevitably that hug has a breaking point at some moment. If you were to abide in a house that your parents left you, someday property taxes will make it impossible for you to stay there and you'll have to sell it or it'll be repossessed from you. Abiding in Jesus provides all the warmth, love, and security for each of these illustrations. 
with all the infinite volume and the infinite duration of time that you could possibly fathom, even, even as he tells his disciples over and over in the Gospel of John, even into eternal life. Eternity is what you have Christ for. Next, Jesus' deity is further declared in what he gives. We've seen his deity declared in I am. We've seen his deity declared in the word true. And now let's look through this passage and see where he gives Things that only deity, only God can give. Specifically, salvation, prayer, love, and joy. Where does Jesus give salvation in this illustration? Well, look at 15.3. In 15.3 of John, this is where Jesus breaks into his own illustration to make a declaration to these 11 disciples. He uses a play on words in the Greek text, which ties the action of the Father, the pruning... Which, when you think about it, it also means to cleanse. He ties that action with these words in 15.3 where he says, You are already clean. You're already clean. This is a declaration to these men of their salvation. Of being regenerate. He's already done this. You can go look at Luke chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. And you can see that Jesus told the 70 men when they returned to him, that they were saved as well. It's his pleasure. It's his great joy to tell someone when they are saved unequivocally. And he would know, right? He would know because he's God. This is an act of God. In 1310, Jesus says, you are clean, the same word, but not all of you, specifically referring to Judas, the betrayer. And then in 1318, Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. These who remain are the chosen, the fruit-bearing ones, the clean branches. Jesus put his whole reputation on the fact of whether or not these men are saved. Would you declare your spouse to be saved today? Would you declare that your children are unequivocally saved today? Would you do that? Would you be willing to stake your reputation on a claim that someone or even a group of people was saved unto eternity? Jesus did. John 15, 3 is a statement from Jesus to these disciples to let them know from him personally, you are saved. What a blessing. What an awesome blessing. Do you imagine how comforting that is to these men on this night? They needed that kind of comfort. They're saved. Giving information about salvation is an act of deity. And then after giving salvation, why not give access to the Father in prayer, which is what Jesus does next. This is what he says in in verse 7 of chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Asking is prayer. Jesus commands asking and promises that it will be done. Who has the power to make that promise? Deity. And since Jesus is God and has full authority, it is no surprise that he can give his love to those who obey him, which is what we see in chapter 15, verse 10, where he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will abide in my love. He knows that they will if they keep his commandments. Are these promises within the reach of the disciples? Did Jesus make these things hard to get? Is he playing hide and seek with the good stuff? Not at all. He's trying to comfort these men. 
Surely these are the promises that are made that are within their reach. And that is obviously the case when you look back at chapter 14, verse 16, and you see that Jesus promised to send the helper to them who would be with them and would be in them forever. These can only be the promises of deity of one who is all-powerful. And such is the case in 1511, where Jesus is found giving again. Jesus says that the whole point in speaking, not only this illustration, but this whole evening, this whole night of glory, was to make my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. This is the purpose. My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Again, only the God-man can make these promises and keep them. Jesus' deity is powerfully on display in this illustration. He has supplied these men with knowledge of how they relate to the, the Son and to the Father, making them ready to abide in the true vine and bearing much fruit. This is the first fruit which comes from the vine and branches illustration. It is the declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. How important is the deity of Jesus Christ to you? How important? Did you think on his deity this last week? Can I even begin to tell you the number of people that live this illustration in reverse? They live it in reverse. Maybe you've done this for a period of time in your life. I hope that you're not doing it today. Have you treated Christ like he's an addition to your life? Is Jesus just a, a tattoo or a little cosmetic surgery to you, something to enhance your external appearance? Is he like a wristwatch that tells you the time when you want to know the time? Is he a pair of sunglasses that help to cut the glare of life down to make it more livable? Is Jesus like a nice collared shirt that you wear on, on Sundays because it makes you look good in front of other people? Is that who Jesus is? Many professing, professing believers treat Jesus this way all the time. They see themselves as the vine and they see Jesus as a branch. And they like the fruit that Jesus produces, and so they let him have a spot on their vine. The first fruit of this illustration is to see clearly. Jesus is both God and Lord. He is Savior and Master. He is the light of the world, the bread of life, and he is the true vine. Allowing believers the privilege to abide in him. Jesus mentions himself in every one of these verses, 1 through 11. And the takeaway for us is this. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is God. He is the true vine. The second fruit supplied by this vine illustration is what we need to look at next. If we're going to abide in Christ, we need to have these fruits that this illustration supplies for us. And the second one is this, the dependence of the branches. I want you to see from the text the dependence of the branches. Seeing the dependence of the branches is the second fruit that comes from this vine illustration. And where do we see dependence in the text? Look at 15 verse 4. Jesus says, commanding them, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, what do we call this? That's dependence. That's dependence. First, the command for it in the word abide, and then the illustration given. Branches are fruitless apart from the vine. And as if he wasn't clear enough about this, look at how he follows that one thought up with the very next one in verse 5. 
He says to them, again, reiterating all over again, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, this is, this is beyond dependence. This is total dependence, okay? Total dependence. Just like we, we know of our newest babies at Berean Bible Church. I call them our because I take possession of them a little myself. Israel and Carmel, these sweet people. You guys will too, right? <laughs> these people, these sweet little babies, they're totally dependent on mom and dad, are they not? Totally dependent. This is how our relationship with God is supposed to be. What does this total dependence mean for these disciples at this moment? Even in the face of the Savior, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross and leaving them the next day, what does it mean? It means obey. It means obey. Obey the commands of Jesus. In 1334, he says, love one another just as I have loved you, that you love one another. He says in 15.4, abide. He says in 15.7, ask, which is pray and ask whatever you wish. It means the disciples are bound to obedience. And if obedience, they will bear fruit. The text says they'll bear fruit. It says they'll bear more fruit. It says they'll bear much fruit. This fruit just continually grows in this illustration. 15.2 says, be prepared. The Father will prune you if you are bearing fruit. So the very purpose of your life would be to bear more fruit. And in 15.8, what do we find out about fruit bearing? Beautiful thing about fruit bearing. Bearing much fruit is glorifying to God and proves that you are Jesus' disciple. In your fruit is glory. Uh, Do you see the chain of events happening here? Dependence, dependence, obedience, obedience, fruit, fruit. This is the plan of God. You know, some people will complain at this point. They'll complain and they'll say, well, you're just trying to be a fruit inspector. Have you had Christians say this to you before? In the body of Christ, Christians, they complain and they say, well, you just want to inspect fruit, inspect fruit. Is it the pastor's and elder's job to shepherd the congregation? It is. So what is the reality of what people call fruit inspecting? Am I concerned about your life? If you're caught up in adultery or pornography or drugs or any other addiction that this life brings to you, what role do I play in your life? Does anybody in your life know what righteousness looks like? Do you want to be pulled from your vices and walk in joy and love like it's being expressed in this text? Do you want a fruit inspector? You know, really what we're talking about is glory deliverers. That's what we're talking about, glory deliverers. To complain is to miss two more blessings of fruit bearing. Obedience and dependence, they yield love and joy. Where is that, Oliver? It's in the text. Fruit bearing generates for you love. What kind of love? What's the quality of the love? It is my love, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is my joy, he says as well. These are the fruit that comes from fruit bearing. But there's two kinds of branches. And sometimes I think those that are complainers, they might be the ones that aren't as dependent. Maybe they're the ones that are independent. And that's what we need to look at next is the second type of branch. The branches that love independence. You know, independence is made unthinkable in this vine illustration. Let's look at independence for a moment because some people do think that independence is a viable alternative and try to live a Christian life that even includes quite a bit of independence. 
Certainly would never cross the mind of an infant, would it? But it has crossed the minds of many adults when it comes to, say, things like electricity, water, food supply, to be independent, to be off the grid. Have you heard of these kind of people before? They have a certain name to go along with them. They are the survivalists, or some call them the doomsday preppers. They're not waiting around for the California aqueduct to be poisoned or the electromagnetic pulse bomb to be detonated over Grand Coulee. They're not going to wait for that. They're going to take matters into their own hands and provide and supply for themselves so that they can continue to exist in whatever state of rebellion to God that they want to. For most, independence from the system becomes an idol, and they get caught laboring for food which is perishing while taking a pass on all of the spiritual feasting that is happening in their local church. Christ may supply some of these folks a little bit, but they certainly do not abide in Him. Now, I'm picking on a type of mindset that is very familiar to me when I'm talking to you about preppers. I'm a former recovering prepper wannabe myself. But really, how many other mindsets, how many other mindsets are making abiding their priority? You know, that's one thing that was a real, real attack on my heart in my, in my prepper days. The, the attack on my heart was that I went to the church and I saw the elders praying at 5.30 in the morning on Tuesday. And I thought, wow, hmm, what a blessed thing. These men on their knees are abiding in Christ. And they don't really pick up conversations with me about running cattle and having nut trees and having fruit trees and having a garden. They're not interested in that. They're interested in my righteousness and my demonstration of it and the righteousness in their own lives and their own demonstration of it. Quite a change. I want you to read, to think about this text again with me. Read, read verse 6 again with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. This is a conditional declaration. And it's not just for idolatrous preppers among us. It's for anyone who lives outside of the vine. Independence is death. It is not possible to have spiritual life in independence. I had mentioned that there were interpretive challenges. I want to tackle a second one here, and I think it's best to wrestle with it at this point. The unfruitful branch. Consider the unfruitful branch with me for a minute. Some say that these branches are born-again believers. Some say that. Some say that these unfruitful branches are born-again believers, genuinely saved and regenerate. And they lean on the language in 15.2, which says that Every branch in me, okay? Every branch in me. Hold on to those two words, in me. Is that what in me is doing in this sentence? Is that what in me is doing in this context? Is this a salvation context per se? It's not. I want to go through a few points to, to help understand what this in me is all about. Number one, this is not a salvation context. It's a context about fruit bearing about abiding. And we see this in the repetitions of the word abide, bear, and fruit. Abiding in this sense is contrasted with in me. If you look at the two verses, he says, abide in me, and that is in direct contrast with everyone in me. The distinction is the word abide. That's the distinction. Second, this is also happening in relation to Judas's scenario. It would be at the forefront of the disciples' minds. Judas having just left after having been there for three years. They believed that Judas was what? That Judas was, they believed that Judas was in Christ. 
They believed that, that he was in Christ. Jesus' illustration makes provision and explains for them what just happened with Judas, that he did not abide. And Jesus says in John 6, 37 and 39, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In verse 39, he says, this of of chapter 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. The point here is that Jesus doesn't lose branches. If you are given to Christ by the Father, he secures you perfectly and holds on to you for all of eternity. Nothing can take you out of the Father's hand. Judas was in Christ, but never abiding. And therefore, Judas was never saved. And Jesus is helping to put that context in these men's mind on this night. So you must make accommodation in your theology and in your soteriology, your understanding of salvation, for a group of people that the Bible calls pretenders. You must make this accommodation. I give you Psalm 81.15, which says this, Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him, and their time of punishment would be forever. Psalm 81.15. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. As you do that, how many of you have been to McDonald's lately? Been to McDonald's lately, the Golden Arches, and gone in to enjoy a burger, some fries, a milkshake? I would imagine that I'm not the only one. I, I had the opportunity to do this yesterday morning. I was blessed by the wall of digital images, which presented to me all these wonderful food choices with the corresponding price for each. They want you to believe that if you give them $5, you will soon be delighting yourself in fluffy eggs and mouth-watering sausage and a lightly toasted English muffin. But what do you get when you open the bag? What do you get when you open the bag? Some people might call it slop. This is the point. This is the point. Some people have a profession of faith that is slop, garbage, worthless, not as advertised. Just as McDonald's images show pretend food that doesn't exist, so too many so-called and self-declared Christians are pretenders of our faith. Look at this warning in, in Peter as he speaks to the first century church. Look at this warning with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Did you see that? Please note, Peter is not saying these people were elect or regenerate. He is reporting to you what they say about themselves. These pretenders in their destructive heresies deny the master who supposedly bought them. And if they are false teachers, what did they ever have in a way of a part in Jesus Christ or accuracy or truth? They didn't know what salvation was. They were supposedly bought by the master. The point is, 
watch out. There are false converts close by. There are pretenders sitting in the pew next to us. There are branches who are, quote unquote, in Christ, who will be taken away, dried, and burned. You know this because you know Psalm 1. You know this because you know Matthew 7. Matthew 7, which these words should ring so true in your ears. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Pretenders. Again, what's at issue? True branches must be totally dependent on Christ. Christ must be the supply of life at all times. The dependent are marked by certain actions. Actions mark the dependent branch. Love from 1334. Abiding from 15.4, prayer from 15.7, 15.8 talks about fruit, and 15.10 says that you obey all the commandments that Christ has given. If these are yours, brothers and sisters, and if they are increasing in your life and in your mind and in your daily walk, the promise of Jesus is that his love is wrapped around you continually like a warm blanket, and his joy is in you and is filling you. Is that your experience today? Is that how you're abiding in Christ? Do you know that relationship with Christ? The dependence of the branches is the second fruit of this vine illustration. To really understand the dependence of the branch. Are you totally dependent on Christ? The third fruit supplied by the vine illustration that will help us to abide in Christ is this. The third fruit of this vine illustration. The demand for God's glory. The demand for God's glory. We see this third the demand for God's glory. And where do we see in the text the demand for God's glory? We see it in 15.1, right out of the gate. My father, Jesus says, is the fine dresser. He's the vine dresser. The father is the owner of everything. The whole point in having a vineyard is to have God pleasing himself in its product. If you start a garden at home and you get weeds, you're not very talented at gardening. <laughs> but you would throw it away and scrap it and use your time doing something different. Many of us here are business owners, and as a result, you've become slave to your business. God is not a slave to his vineyard. He is in total control of it, and it's moving exactly like he wants it to move. We see this next in the text in 15.2. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit, right? And what else does he do? What else does he do with his garden? He prunes. He sees the branch that is bearing fruit and he knows, and he's already calculated like a master gardener, that if he clips here and clips here and clips here, that the fruit of the whole of that branch, the fruit of that branch will only increase in production. That'll be better for the branch, right? To be able to produce all that fruit, it'll be better for God as well. Does pruning feel good? No. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline that we receive from the Lord. And sometimes that's his form of pruning us. Sometimes it's taking us through very, very significant and challenging times in our lives, very difficult seasons, relationally, physically. The Lord is doing all kinds of pruning. What does he want? What does he want when he's pruning you? He's pruning you right now. Do you know 
that He's pruning you? What does He want in His pruning of you? He wants you to bear more fruit. This tells us the Father is able to keep His vineyard, in His vineyard, only those branches that He is most pleased with, all for the purpose of getting His glory. And where specifically do we know that God's glory is in fruit-bearing branches? Where do we know this? In verse 8. In verse 8, he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You know, I just have to ask, is this verse highlighted in your Bible? Can I see? Is that verse highlighted in your Bible, brother? (laughs) Is it highlighted in the Bible of the person sitting next to you? Go ahead and look over and see. Is it highlighted? Can you highlight it for them? This verse is critical to your life. Your fruit brings glory to God and it proves that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's very helpful to you to know this. It's so clarifying. We've set up stations on each of the exit doors to make sure that this verse is highlighted in your Bible before you leave. (laughs) How is this for a worldview? What an incredible worldview for people to understand the purpose of life, that God's in charge, that he's in control, that everything works out according to his plan that he has his son who is the vine and we're supposed to abide in him and we bear fruit, that we just become a conduit, a pass-through. Everything vital for life, every nutrient, every, every bit of understanding or knowledge that goes into making fruit is in the vine. It's in the vine. And we're just a conduit, the branch that gives an opportunity for the expression of all of the joy and wealth and treasure that is in the vine. You're just a conduit of something eternal and spiritual and perfect and glorious. You're just a conduit. How many of you would object to this, this idea? How many of you would object and and say, can God make me bear good fruit against my will? To you, brother or sister, let me borrow a comment from Charles Spurgeon to answer this objection. Brother Spurgeon would say to you this. He would say, I tell you, yes, For herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it? But it makes you willing in the day of God's power. The gospel wants not your consent. It gets it. It knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I don't want to be saved. Christ says, you shall be saved. And you say, I don't want to bear fruit. And Christ says, you will bear much fruit. He makes your will turn around. Ah, he says, ah, might heaven exclaim, I knew I would make you say that. And I knew that I would make you bear that fruit. And then he rejoices over you because he changed your will and made you willing in the day of his power. Do you see the glory? Do you see the sovereignty? Do you see the control? This is who our God is. So powerful. And he's communicating this to men, 11 of them, on this night of glory. So impassioned is his communication with them. So desirous that they would know this, that everything in the universe, the whole world, is controlled and has a singular purpose to bring glory to God. Jesus' illustration and this clarifying comment remind us that this truly is the night of glory. Jesus here is highlighting the Father's sovereignty over his vineyard. He has highlighted the Father's glory as the central focus of human existence. And then in verses 9 and 10, what does Jesus highlight from the Father as well? He highlights his love and his commandments. 
15, 9, and 10 show us the perfect harmony and complementary nature of obedience and love, as well as the incomprehensible value of God's words and the need of all humanity to abide in them. Knowing the glory of God is the third and greatest takeaway from this vine illustration. Knowing that the whole purpose of all of humanity for all of time is to glorify God. That's our purpose. Do you treat God's word as the supply of your very life and existence? I would imagine that when the power goes off in your home, that you call the power company right away. And I would imagine that if the water is cut off in your house and you don't get it when you want to wash your hands, that you would call the water company right away at the very moment that it happens. But why don't you treat God the same way? Why don't you treat him the same way? Are you a branch abiding in the vine? Or are you a branch that the master is about to throw away? Before we conclude our time, I want to help at this point. In particular, I want to help at this point. You are a fruit-bearing branch if you are a continual repenter. You're a fruit-bearing branch if you're a continual repenter. You're a fruit-bearing branch if you are a continual forgiver. If you're a continual forgiver. If you confess the one to whom we all must confess our sins. If you confess to the Lord Jesus Christ your sins and turn from them, Turn from wickedness to righteousness, not just in your actions and your words, but down to the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. If this is what you do in the private of your closet, in your prayer place, then you are a branch who is bearing much fruit. Fruit bearing branches come to church. They love the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is happening here. They love to build the spiritual house as living stones themselves being connected with his body. They love to be here. They smile. Go ahead. Smile. (laughs) They're warm. They're polite. Their comments are gentle and gracious and kind. They're filled with the love and joy of Jesus Christ continually, regardless of what situations happen to them in their lives. This is so many of all of you. I know this of you. And this is why I say to you this morning again, as Christ said to his disciples, abide in Christ. He is your supply. But what if this is not you? Yet you maintain a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. What if your supply is this world and the things of this world? You can have all this world. Didn't we sing that earlier? You can have all this world. What if that's your supply is all this world? What if Jesus is is a nice shirt to wear at church and you find it to be pleasant to sit in these wooden pews? It's just a fun place to sit on Sunday morning. I pray for you. If this is you, I pray for you. I pray for your conscience to be burned by this message today so that before the time of your death that you would repent of your sin and not be consumed in eternal fire. But this message today is for believers whose eyes can see and whose ears can hear and whose ears have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the God-man came down, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, died a horrible sinner's death on a cross to pay for the sin of all those who would be saved. He was buried in a tomb and raised three days later. And this message of salvation communicates to us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Our sin was imputed to Christ. 
And Christ's righteousness was imputed onto us like a jacket, like a warm blanket. You get to abide in the righteousness of Christ all the days that you live on this earth until the appointed time when God takes you out of this place and shows you what that all meant. What a glorious situation we have in Christ. This is the gospel message, brothers and sisters. We will win our battle against our wicked hearts and Satan and the world system because we will abide in Christ. He is our perfect supply. Be filled with his love and joy today and bear much fruit to the praise and glory of God our Father. Will you pray with me? Our Father God in heaven, it is our delight to know that you are the vine and that we are the branches. It is our sweet treasure to know that you have given us your joy. You've given us your love, the ability to communicate with you in prayer. And we ask, Lord, today, we ask now that you would cause each of us to obey and keep your commandments and that we each would commit to abiding in you. If we are truly saved and truly regenerate, we must. Lord, allow this message to offer its conviction to the heart that needs conviction. And allow this message, as with the 11 disciples, to offer such great and powerful encouragement where the brothers and sisters need encouragement. We praise you. Let us do it again now in, in song. In Christ's name, amen.